0: Well, tonight we come to Exodus 11. And it's just a handful of verses. And it's really a chapter that's sort of prepping us for the next few chapters, namely on the Passover and what comes from that. But thus far in this book, you guys know the process. (laughs) God said, hey, remember, uh, he's not going to say yes. <laughs> he's going to resist you. I'm telling you this up front. And you remember Moses went the first day and he said no. And then he made everybody get twice as many bricks and didn't give him any straw. And, and, and Moses is like, ah, I don't understand this. And he hadn't learned to hear the word of God yet, had he? He hadn't learned to, to really take note of it. I, I like what Jesus said. Not one jot or tittle of this word will pass away. That God's word is, is very specific right down, not only to every letter, but every breath mark and period and dot. And so God had said, hey, he's not gonna let you go. It's gonna be a difficult season before he finally says, you can go. Now we've seen right up front where Pharaoh just said, no. And then we've also seen where he says, okay, you can go. But then as soon as the plague was gone, he goes, no, you can't go after all. <laughs> and then he did the compromise thing. Yes, you can go. Okay, but not your animals, not your women and children, only the men. You can go, but not out of the country. Okay, you can leave the country. but not very far. He kept compromising, but but Moses and, of course, God is the one that would not do it. And so God said, because you refuse, I'm going to send plagues or I think judgments upon you. The people, Pharaoh was judged, the people were judged, but also the the gods of Egypt were being uh, made fun of, really, and showing how infinite and unreal they really were. And we saw the Nile turning the blood. We saw frogs and lice and flies and the death to the livestock and boils on the people and devastating hellstorm and locusts and a painful darkness. And in all this, Pharaoh said, I will not let the people go. I like what Thomas says on this. He says these nine plagues can be seen as a whole. They touch every phase of nature. Mineral, animals, vegetables, humans—they affected persons and properties and included all from the highest to the lowest. So it really did affect every single part of man and animal and and vegetation. It was a really a thorough, thorough judgment. And then, of course, um, all the way from the lowest to the highest. So what's it going to take? Let's just ask that question. I think it's the most important question here. What is it going to take to finally let God's people go? That's what we're going to learn beginning tonight, but really in the next few chapters. It's one thing. And so we've named them the 10 plagues. I don't really think they are (laughs) the 10 plagues. I don't think Moses knew them as the 10 plagues. I I think he probably didn't even know the 10 commandments as the 10 commandments. These are names that we put to things. There's actually nine plagues, okay? I'm not saying the 10th isn't a plague, but it really stands alone. The, The Passover really stands alone because it's as much about salvation, redemption as it is in judgment. So... The next one, the the 10th, the Passover, is completely unique because God does judge those who do not believe and will not apply the blood to the house and have the Passover lamb. There is judgment, condemnation, death because of that. But there's also redemption to those who do have faith in God's word and have the Passover lamb and do apply blood to the... And so isn't, isn't that really how we come out of our darkness, our Egypt, our fleshly, worldly life. I think a lot of times God plagues us. I mean, there's a lot of people until they've lost everything and they're laying flat on the ground, then they finally cry out to God. I know a lot of rich people, healthy people, famous people, God really humbles them in their health or their finances or whatever until finally they, they, they have a, a ability to kneel to God. But with all of us, it's the judgment, but really it's in the same stroke, redemption. And this is really the New Testament doctrine that we will see elaborated throughout the New Testament. I think it's said very well in in Romans 6.23, on one side, the wages of sin is death. On the other side, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the same with the Passover. On one hand, the lamb dies. There's a substitute, and its blood is a substitute for giving our sin. Of course, it's only covering the sin of the Old Testament. Sin wasn't taken away until Christ, the Lamb of God. But nevertheless, and in the same stroke, our sins are judged. Our sins are condemned in that substitute Christ. Right. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He, he was judged, but in the same exact moment that our sin was condemned in the Lamb of God, in the same moment, redemption came to those who now believe. And so the wages of sin is death. That's harsh. That's eternal damnation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, this is the this is the shadow, if you would, of that doctrine. So let's ch- start in here, chapter 11, verse 1. And The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague or judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Now, what do you think Moses thought when he heard that? Do you think he knew in advance? Oh, yeah, we have nine. We have one more to go. Ten. Oh, yeah, this is the last one we're doing anyway. Or did Moses think there might be fifteen or twenty of these? It might go on for another two years or five years. He had no idea. And then God says, "This is it. One more, and He's going to let you go." What do you think Moses thought? Wow! Oh, that's it. Do you think he counted them up? One, two, three, four. No, I don't think he did. Oh, 10. Oh, that's a nice number, God. Thank you. Um, I don't think he thought that uh, at all. I just think he just heard one more plague and we're out of here. Now, in reality, he's always known what the last plague would be. Do you remember way at the beginning when Moses was devastated over Pharaoh saying, no, you can't go, and then causing the people to suffer building more bricks without straw? God God said to him, Moses, I'm going to say it to you again. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. He told him up front, didn't he? And this final plague, right there, right there in verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23. And this final plague, Pharaoh wouldn't merely allow Israel to leave he would compel them to go. So Moses has always known what would be the last one if he remembered this and believed. It didn't seem like he got all the details up front earlier. Maybe he got the details, and, or maybe he's going, wow, I totally forgot about that. That was nine months ago, and I'm 80 years old. I don't remember a lot of things. I don't know. But either way, he was told way in advance that the final plague would be the death of the son. Well, verse two, speak now to the in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Now, I think in verse two, he's not saying, hey, here's something new for you to think about. He is saying, remember the thing I talked to you way back in chapter three it's time to instrument this now. Remember Moses was told way back in chapter three, look in verse 19 to 22, he he told them eventually when they're ready to push you out the door, this is what you're gonna do. But I am sure that the king of Egypt, in verse 19 of Exodus 3, will not let you go, no, not even by the mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt and all the wonders which I do in the midst. And after that, he'll let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, something not mentioned in chapter 11, also clothing, cloth. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So here's a picture they didn't get right in the movie. When the the children of Israel left Egypt, they were styling. I mean, they look like Mr. T. They had all the gold and the silver and the best articles of clothing, and the ladies had the best articles of any kind of cloth there was on them, you know, three or four levels high, and all the kids are, you know, walking out looking stylish looking like king's kids on the way out the door. These guys that went from slaves and horrible, horrible oppressive conditions to taking out the gold and the silver and the best of the fabrics. So again, as we look at these two verses, I think it was stunning to Moses. Wow. God said this, I don't know, a year ago. We don't know how long this, this plagues thing played out. Let's say a year ago, God said this would happen. And that's what happened. Wow, God is sovereign. God's in control here. It looked like he was gonna lose here and there, but he was never close to losing. It looked like we were gonna really uh, walk away devastated with a black eye over this thing and everybody more discouraged than when we came. That's what it looked like. But at the end, God's plan was already set before I ever showed up to Egypt. Isn't that really the message God's given him here? We're going to get that in this chapter. Let me tell you something. In our pilgrimage as a Christian, there is a point where we get the sovereignty of God. And it first sort of blows us away, and then it just sort of causes our head to explode for a few days. And then it's just so amazingly comforting that God has all our life in his hands. He knitted you in your mother's womb. Did you know that? The Bible says that. That he knows right this moment, every hair on your head. Do you know that? I was there when my babies were born and I looked at all their hair and I couldn't count them, but God did. That's pretty amazing. Every sparrow that falls to the sky before it dies, he knows about it, where it falls. I think we're supposed to be blown away. Now, if this isn't enough to blow your mind away, well, hundreds of years earlier, God actually talked about this. Do you remember when... Uh, Abraham was all complaining, all never have kids. I guess Elazar, my servant, will, will be the heir of my house. And and God said, go look at the stars of heaven. And he says, that's how many kids you're going to have. And Abraham believed God. It was counted in for righteousness. And God said, OK, go, go cut the animals in half, and we'll make a covenant. And this is where you two of them walked together. I'll keep my half. You keep your half. But God didn't show up. And Abraham fell asleep. And when he woke up from this nightmare, he realized God had come and gone. In God, essence, God's saying, I'll keep my half and I'll keep your half. Our covenant will be based on my goodness, my faithfulness, not yours. But the whole time, he was having a nightmare. Because Abraham is thinking, children, children. If I have children, then I am rich. And then I have everything. And yet God said, yeah, you're going to have children, but they're all going to be slaves for hundreds of years in a foreign land. And that's how he woke up. Like, oh, man, (laughs) great. Why even have any kids? If that's the way it's going to end up, that's horrible. But he does say in Genesis 15, in verse 13 and 14, he said to Abraham, know certainly that the descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And now listen to verse 14. But also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Whoa. Now, Moses is the one who eventually wrote Genesis. I'm sure that he made all these connections. But God said hundreds of years earlier that this moment in time that's happening would happen. We showed a few Sunday mornings ago, uh, Bill... um, Billy um, clone his video and he was showing all of these clips and and stuff and it's mind-boggling because you you know there's going to eventually be a mark that nobody can buy or sell without that mark and you're like how can that be and then people try to hide themselves even if they hide themselves in the middle of a mountain they're still found you're like how can this be of course now even a kindergarten could explain to you basically how the chip works, right? Or how uh, the electronics work. You know, the kid the other day was, he had a picture, an actual picture. And, and he put it on the ground, you know, this little three-year-old, and he kept trying to expand the picture, make it bigger, you know. He kept pushing on it and then trying to slide it to see what's the other picture and was quite frustrated, Boy, things have changed, and we're just here going, wow. And then Europe, the, the, the revived Roman Empire, is going to become the greatest power on earth. And out of that, the Antichrist and all things are setting up. It's, it's surreal. It really is surreal hearing people saying the very thing that the Bible says. But here it is something that God prophesied hundreds of years earlier to Abraham, it's now happened. It's been 400 years. Did you know that? And now they're going to leave this land with great possessions, just as God had prophesied. I think all of this was to overwhelm the senses of Moses, if you would, or give him great faith that he doesn't have to fret, doesn't have to worry, that God truly does have this from start to finish isn't that really the message here and so you know archaeologically we know it wasn't just women that had jewelry men even had as much jewelry or even more sometimes than the women but also these are probably just the past wages in God's mind I think saying hey 400 years of slavery they never got a paycheck Uh, you need to give them 400 uh, years of past wages is what's happening. Now you say, well, why do they need all this gold and silver in this cloth? When we get to chapter 35, you're gonna find out. All of this stuff, I love this, it's given to them to give back to God in worship or at least a portion of it to build the tabernacle. Myers in his commentary said, these jewels were employed afterwards in the adornment, the enrichment of the sanctuary. They flashed in the breastplate of the high priest and shown in the sacred vessels. Well, verse three, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in all the sight of the people. This is so ironic, isn't it? That Moses now is very great in the sight of all of Pharaoh's servants. Why is it ironic? Because remember 40 years earlier (laughs) when he was the prince of Egypt? He was the king's son. And that's what he thought everybody was looking at him like that. And that's why he had no problems killing the Egyptian and and, and, and he thought everybody would understand. But now he's not even wanting to go. Now he's the humblest man on earth. And it's... When he's the humblest man on earth, he's lifted up. And all these people that he used to want to look at him as a great man, now they are. But now he doesn't want it. (laughs) I don't think it means anything to him that these pagan Egyptians, these idol-worshipping Egyptians see him as a very, not great man, a very great man. Uh, I don't know. The irony is, is immense to me. Well, in verses 4 to 8 here now, I would like to make a note, as we're going to see at the end of verse 8, that Pharaoh is, or Moses is talking to Pharaoh. Now, why is this important? Because the very remember the last two verses of chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, Pharaoh said, you'll never see my face again, you know? And then Moses said, you're right, I'll never see your face again. Well, guess what? They were both wrong, <laughs> Because here, God actually says, uh, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh is going to see your face again, and you are going to go down there and talk to him one more time. And so we're going to, it doesn't tell us here, but at the end of verse 8, it does tell us that uh, he, he, it was Pharaoh he was talking to. Well, anyway, in verse 4 through 8, and then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Okay? This is heavy stuff. It's sort of warming us up, preparing us for chapter 12, if you would. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits in his throne, even to the firstborn of, look at, the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. So he says from Pharaoh's household all the way down to the Least servant, the, the one who was behind the handmill, it actually mentions it later in, in Isaiah, it, it's the lowliest of all the servants. If she doesn't apply the blood on the doorpost of her house, her child, her firstborn also shall die. So from the greatest, if you would, to the least, from the Egyptian to the Hebrews, or whatever nationality they are, they're not Egyptian, they shall suffer, and even the animals of that household, not just the firstborn child, but also the animals of that household also shall shall die. And verse six, then there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. This is a moment of time that will not be, duplicated in its extremity of sorrow, but against none of the children, verse seven, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So he says, man, that it's going to be extreme. It's not going to be more extreme than at this time, You're going to have the Egyptians. You're going to hear people weeping like people have never on earth wept nor ever will again in that, in Egypt. But at the same time, it's not like, and the children of Israel aren't weeping. No, 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 no. No, the children of Israel are getting the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that dog, if you've seen dogs that are, at rest, you know, there, there's there's some dogs that maybe live in an apartment complex, and it's on a busy road, and the dog never really rests, you know, he's always, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, he's always wondering if he's going to have to bark, or get up, or, you know, because there's always a motorcycle, or it's a poor old dog, just never is just completely in a coma, napping, but he's saying, this is what you're going to see you're going to see the dog even the dogs are completely at rest not just human beings there's a a great peace of god and so again it 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 if you have thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of, thousands of people millions really because we know there's 2 3 million hebrews that are leaving so at least that many egyptians maybe more are are Screeching and crying and welling over the death of their child. But yet, it's not affecting you at all. Zero effect. Maybe they can't hear the crying. Or maybe it's just God is just giving them a peace uh, in spite of all that crying. But either way, not even the dog Uh, is up. He's just in a coma, sleeping at peace. Now, verse 8, and all these, your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out. And all you, all the people who follow you after that, I go out. So you you say, well, finally, Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. It really wasn't. It was everybody. Get out. All his top guys, get out. It wasn't, you know, Pharaoh joined in at some point, I'm sure. But really, it was sort of a, a, the entire population of all the Egyptians and all the head Egyptians are speaking out. It's time for you guys to go. We've been telling Pharaoh this for weeks, months, but now we're taking it into our own hands. Whatever Pharaoh says, I don't care. You guys need to get out. And so then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So he now is leaving, and of course, he, Pharaoh said, you see my face again, you're dead man, but he saw his face again, and he didn't die. So there was this uh, extreme thing happening. And of course, if Pharaoh's firstborn son died, that's the heir of the kingdom. And remember, Pharaoh, he is the embodiment of God Ra, the sun god. So in reality, when his son took the throne, he would be embodiment God as well. But the future God died. And, uh, and he knew he would die if he didn't do the silly thing, eating a lamb in a certain way and putting the blood on the doorpost. He wasn't going to be this silly religious guy the way the Hebrews want him to be. Too much pride, too much arrogance uh, to do that. But these servants, he says, will go down to me, bow down to me, saying, get out. Wow, they'll come down to me. They'll bow down to me, saying, get out. Well, verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that your wonder, my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not heed you. God said this repeatedly. It's because my wonders are going to be multiplied. It's going to be a testimony throughout time in all the world as it is to this day. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. He was angry. He heard it, but he didn't move. Why? This is all a part of God's plan. I want to look at Romans 9 again, because we really do need to understand how God had this plan going on he told it to Abraham hundreds of years earlier do you think that's the first time God ever thought of it (laughs) or did God think about it when he was creating the world or maybe before he ever created the world that this event would happen where God's firstborn child Israel Would be brought out by a mighty hand of God because of the hardening of heart of Pharaoh. That the world would would be it be proclaimed to the world who the true mighty God is. In Romans nine verse seventeen and twenty four, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, Uh, I think that's interesting that Paul says it that way. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. There it is. I can show my power in you and my name would be declared in all the earth. Therefore he, God, Paul. this is what Paul says, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power of the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor, another for dishonor? What if, doesn't say God does this, but he, he's... Given a hypothetical. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long sufferings the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, here it is, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying when you realize, when you get these little pictures, these little glimpses of God's sovereignty, it should radically humble you. Now, there's the prideful heart that says, well, why did God have any fault? Well, why did God make me like this? Well, I don't like being a cup. I want to be a bowl. God, make me a bowl, not a cup. No, 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 no. <laughs> God just says, there you are. You're just a big ball of clay again. Throw you over in the corner and let you harden for a while. In essence, he's saying all of us, if we get the sovereignty of God, we'll fall on our faces and be in awe of God and say, God, I'm a vessel of mercy I'm a vessel of honor. Just like Israel, it was the firstborn. So we, the believers, your children who have been adopted into the house of Israel, are also counted as the seed of Abraham, your firstborn. And so in essence, if if people are thinking they're putting God in a checkmate, I, I remember in high school, I had some friends that were backsliding and And I said, man, what if the Lord comes today? Or what if you die? He said, I got to figure it out. You know, just right before I die, I'll go, God, forgive me for all my sins. Oop, get to go to heaven. (laughs) And I'm like, dude. How do you know you would even have that split second to even say that? And how do you know that it's real and not you just manipulating the situation? No, if you think you're going to win some checkmate with God, he's telling you here, if you're playing games with God, you will lose because he's, he's the greatest intellect and you are not. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, I love this. Remember the former things of old, for I am a God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring what? The end from the beginning, from ancient time, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. So the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart here. But let's not forget this important reminder that Pharaoh hardened his own heart six times before God ever hardened his heart. We covered that a couple of weeks back and i went through all those verses with you guys so again it's it's important to remember that that god did not step over on top of ignore abuse pharaoh's free will okay he totally gave him a chance and and even as we saw many times before the plague came moses said hey Tomorrow, this is going to happen if you don't let God's people go. He warned them in advance on several of them, giving him a chance to repent. Well, what do we learn here tonight? I have a bunch of verses for you. I'm not going to go through them all. Number one, we just realize again the important point that rejection of God brings judgment. I don't know about you, but I want to shout it from the mountaintop. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross, paid for your sins. He's your substitute. Cry out to him and he will forgive you of all your sins. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. All of us are born sinners. 100% of mankind is going to hell except for the one way of salvation. John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Don't have time to read it, but in Revelation 20, in Revelation 21, verse 8, interesting, it gives a list of those who are going to be in that judgment, who are going to be taken from Hades and cast into hell uh, forever and ever. It's interesting that the very first two things is the first one is cowardly, the second is unbelieving. And God definitely sees a person harden his heart to a point of no return. Only God can see that. He talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 through 12 where the unrighteous People will not believe the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, that reason he gives them a strong delusion and encourages them not to believe and encourages them to believe the lie that they will be condemned because they would not believe the truth. Secondly, he who believes is not condemned, but shall go out and have life forevermore. I love that again in John 3, 18, he who believes... Is not condemned. I love that in John ten, verse seven and nine, where Jesus says, I am the door of this sheep. I'm the door. Anybody who enters in by me, he shall be saved. This is my favorite part. He shall go out, he shall come, he shall go in and out and find pasture. Isn't that great? Here's your homework. Go home and read Revelation twenty one the new heavens and the new earth and no more tears. And we drink from the river of life. Uh, The third thing is, is that only one way for salvation, and that's through the blood of the substitute in our place. We're going to be looking at this. John said, and John, John the Baptist said in John 129, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter makes it clear we weren't redeemed with gold or silver or corruptible things, but we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. Through the blood of Christ, we have gotten remission of sins. So now as we fellowship with him, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then the articles of wealth, We're given to them, really, for ministry. Why has God given us what he's given us? Because that we might use this at a later date to serve him even greater. And of course, as we give, we'll store up treasure in heaven, as Jesus tells us. Ah, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this tiny little chapter that has so much great, great truth. We just desire you and want you and cry out to you. So, again, as we go into congregational praying tonight, we're not going to quote, we can read verses, and encourage each other, but we're not going to tell stories or talk to the group here. We're seeking the Lord, we're seeking the face of God, we're crying out to God from the principles we learned here tonight. We're crying out to God for things that concern the whole body of Christ. If you have a personal thing you want prayer for, we can do that afterwards. But we're seeking the Lord. We're crying out to him as Jesus taught us to pray. Our father, not my father, our father, give us today our daily bread. So really, it's one prayer we're praying right now. And. One person speaks, then the next guy speaks, the next guy speaks. We're all giving a comma, and the next guy's praying. So we don't really want to even make our prayer sound like we end it. We just sort of give a comma. We're one voice, one body, one heart, crying out to God together. And I'll tell you, so often the very thing that the person before the other person prays was exactly what they were thinking and, and it's just a beautiful thing when we're in this spirit in one accord together.